This is the Enneagram 8 Podcast, and we're here to take you inside the armor. We're here just to make everything more complicated. You are welcome. So we've already established there are nine types. And then we went on to tell you that there are nine different tri-types. And then we explained that there are three instincts. Today, we're going to talk about the fact that there are a variety of ways that those instincts are shuffled around inside of us, and those are called stackings. While it is a lot to take in, I find it a comfort to be reminded over and over and over again that humans are incredibly diverse. We can't really be figured out, but there are also a lot of good explanations for some of the things we do. So listen in today on why the order of your instincts matters. We all have all three. They just don't show up inside of us the same way, or in the same order, or with the same intensity. Okay, episode two on instincts. That was a really lame intro. Welcome back. Do better. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. Welcome back, says the social (laughs) eight. We are now going into instinct stacking. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo! And why the order matters. The order really does matter. And before we do that, what is your order, Erin? My order is social, sexual, and self-pres last. And I am sexual, self-pres, social, so very last. (laughs) Yeah, some people, their stacking might be closer together, but I think I have social in the so far in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I would say the same for me in the past with self-pres. I'm much better now. It's getting a little more... uh... Well, I'm trying to activate my social and it is very painful, but I'm trying. <laughs> I like how you have to say activate. Activate. I think my self-pres <laughs> happened to me whether I liked it or not. <laughs> that's right. I have to choose to be social. So that's a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> okay, so back to big hormone. They really are kind of the best at this. Can we put a little disclaimer that says they're a little bit rough? Big hormone has, to our knowledge, the best understanding of the instincts that we can find. I will say, I don't find them the healthiest individuals. They're very dark humans. They're very dark and our whole podcast is for becoming healthier eights. I think they really relish in where they're at. (laughs) (laughs) And as long as you're cool with just skipping that, they have so much good content in there. That's valuable. Really intelligent, well thought out Mm -hmm. people. Yes, they are. Yeah. Okay, so they refer to the different parts of the stacking as dominant, middle, and blind spot. In a nutshell, what they say about your dominant instinct is that you're essentially putting all your eggs in that basket, and you are relying on that instinct to function in the human world. So I am always angling towards deep connections, and my lens is depth, 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 drill down, drill down. And I'm always, always looking at community. I'm community-oriented, what is good for the group? Yeah. And you'd be tempted to say, well, your dominant is the one you're awesome at and you do it super well. Isn't that what number one means? Your number one (laughs) slot. But the tricky thing with this is because it's where you focus, it's where you are really fixating. And the more unhealthy you are, the more fixated across the board with type as well. It means you're overdoing it. And so it's an area where to someone else looking in, they're like, whoa, you're a little much, you're a little extra in that instinct. And so I know it, I felt it. I can feel sometimes when I'm overdoing the sexual. And um, if someone's not here for it, there really is, I have this hindsight sense that I really push too hard in that area. 
Yeah, I think I push too hard in when I see someone can do something better or the bigger picture of what they're capable of, and I push them into it whether they like it or not. Right. So I, Suzanne Stabile, I've heard her refer to this as sort of if you can picture a three-legged stool. And when you chop off one of the legs, right, you're not, you're not even. You can't hold the stool up. Yeah. You're not balanced. Mm-hmm. So the goal is sort of to use all three instincts so that they hold you up properly. Right. See, I like the idea. It's not me being fatalistic. It's me learning the group matters when I say this. I think reality is we're not actually ever going to be able to be a three-legged stool. This is a big deal for me to say this as social last. I think the goal is we look across that barrier we have to our social and our self-pres and we go, I need you. I really need you. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you too. Right? Because I definitely don't like the idea in the Enneagram where you're supposed to be a little bit of every number. A That's god. the goal, right? No, I hate Become that. a god. We're created on purpose for a purpose. And yeah. if that's true, and I believe it is true, we have God-given talents, each of us, for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. And we can't all have the same ones. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to be in community with each other. And we need to go into community for exactly what you said, because we need each other. So a cool idea is kind of, you know, you walk into that room that we were talking about. And I know I have Aaron to help explain the group to me. And I know I have like my self-pres people to go, okay, the snacks are here. Do you have toilet paper in the bathroom? Like yeah. they, it, it's knowing that there are people in that room that make it all work. And you're part of that. Yes. So that's kind of yep. the ideal. And you pull us into our, our present place. You make us think about what we're feeling and dealing with in the present moment and make us dig deeper into why and how and what. And so we can actually identify things that we pass over constantly. Totally. How do you relate to people who are the same instinct as you? How would you describe that? I feel like they're easy. It's just easy and it's, but it's not deep connection. It's, um, I think in the past, I probably would have felt threatened, to be honest. I think we maybe would have butt heads because I'm especially where social is. Like I take control and you can't have two people taking control. But as I have learned more and grown more, I love when I meet my match because I hand over half the situation. <laughs> what right. about you? Almost similar words in that they're so familiar. So, so, so very familiar And in that sense, it means great resting place, but in another sense, can't grow. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. um, you kind of reinforce that energy in each other. And so yay, thank, thankful for them as a place to retreat to when you've been beat up in like those other spheres. And just feeling a place where you're known, feeling safe again for a minute. Yeah. Right. We don't grow there, Mm -hmm. but we do need that space. Totally. So I'm grateful. So you're dominant when people have it last. How do you experience them? That's my husband. Yeah. It's really hard to explain why I do what I do. And I think he graciously tries to hear me out, but has no comprehension of what I'm saying or why I care. <laughs> so when I explain a group thing to him, his reaction is to like shrug his shoulders. Can I still make money? Yes. Can I, is my family safe? Yes. And he's fine. And I'm like, hold on. Could you not see the bigger picture? Like, look at all the harm that is going to come down from this. And he just isn't even aware and he doesn't care. And I can't make him care. So it's, it's hard, but at the same time, he doesn't interfere with my instinct. If I want to do those things, he's like, mm, sure, take it or leave it. Like, go ahead. If you want to fight for that, like, sure. Mm-hmm. But it's not that he's going to jump in and do it with me, but he's not going to stop me mm-hmm. and he has no interest in stopping me. In my unhealthy days, my more self-oriented days, I would have said that people with sexual last 
I just thought they were boring. And, I was going to say you'd be disinterested. Yeah, totally, <laughs> just not interested. And I would say, thank the Lord that's changed. How I'd put it is this. People with sexual lust, energetically, there's no hook that would pull me in and keep me there. Instead, I've learned that it's a relationship that is going to be based on shared interests or right. doing things that we both like. And that's just, that's so valuable as well. And I don't need to be like an energy whore. Like I don't need to be <laughs> trolling around only hunting down people who have that energy because frankly, like I said, that's not a growth spot for me. Right. For me to be able to kind of recognize, okay, this person does not have that energy pull and they sure have something though that I can learn and relate to. So it might take a little digging to figure out what what is going to hook me into the relationship if there isn't the energy, but I'm learning the value of that. That's so sexual. Of you. I know. <laughs> I know. Find the other that's hook. how I'd explain it. Yeah, I, no, I, I think that's totally a really good explain explanation. It. Yeah. No, I can't have some deep energetic connection to everybody, but I do have to have relationships with all kinds of people. Yeah. And that's good enough. <laughs> okay. So moving on to the middle instinct, this one's very interesting. Very, very interesting. Basically, our middle instinct, it's not a threat to us at all or a distraction. It's kind of our play zone. Big Hormone talks about this. They say it's a zone where it's easy come, easy go. You can say, access take it. Take it or leave it. Exactly. Meh. And so, Erin, for you, with your sexual second, describe what that's like. Yeah, I would say that's exactly accurate. Like when I want to go deep with someone, I go deep with someone and I enjoy that space. But if it becomes too much, I just don't do it anymore. Or I back off or I go get carried up in something else. It is really light. It's not something that weighs me down. It is not all consuming. Like I feel like you can feel sometimes like you need that thing. I love that thing, mm -hmm. but I don't need that thing. Right. Yeah. So John would say your secondary instinct is somewhat neutral and it supports your dominant kind of like a resting spot. And I experience self-pres that way. And so I have a story, I think I mentioned it on the podcast already, but I remember the moment I realized that I was obsessing over food at a potluck. I remember the moment I could feel that I was like, oh no, my favorite salad is about to run out. And I was like, I need to elbow my way to the table to make sure I get some of the salad before there is no salad. And I remember going, that's really gross. Like I had the wherewithal to recognize you. And then I went, I'm going to shut that down. And I just turned it off. And I went, I do not need the salad. That is not important. I don't need the salad and made myself go last. The same thing with money. I can spontaneously feel a moment of anxiety about money and I can go, no, tell myself, no, it doesn't matter. And I can talk myself down. So it is really something I, c I have control over. Mm -hmm. I also instinctively know what my body needs and I can go get it. I don't stress about it. I just go and I get what I need. And um, Aaron and I have talked about that. I have never been burnt out. I never push the limit. I know what my body needs. I get it. And it's, it's very easy come, easy go. Interesting to note is that people you know who have your dominant instinct as their middle can annoy the heck out of you and frustrate you because your dominant is something that you kind of consider sacred. It is really important to you. It's how you run your life. And so if someone you know has it in the middle and it's easy come, easy go, it doesn't look like it matters. They're treating your God as like a plaything mm -hmm. and it, it looks so easy and you're so angsty and longing to have more of, of your first one and they don't seem to care and they seem to come by it naturally. It's basically they seem to be able to access the thing 
that you're always striving to access and they do it so naturally, so easily, and it doesn't come with the same carnage. Well, it's not all consuming. Yeah, they're never overdoing it. And so I was talking to Erin about how that was her in high school. My sexual energy was so over the top and I was always like angsty and angling for it and whatnot. And it meant I had like relationships that really crashed and burned and I was always hunting. She just naturally could pull people in and do that deep thing. And I could see people being energetically connected to her, but she didn't seem to be fixated on it. And then when it moved on, she could move on. And I remember just going, that's annoying. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of annoying. (laughs) That's so funny. I kind of saw it as me prowling, like I was hunting for this thing. And Aaron was like a nymph in the forest, just dancing <laughs> in the forest. And these attract attractions would happen. And she's just la, la, la. And I'm deadly serious on the hunt. <laughs> and so she was annoying. Aaron, somebody who has social second. What does the only that person, look like? The only person I know, I think, who has social second is one of my friends. And she's self-pres first. So for her, she can turn it on. So she can get engaged. She can worry about the cause, the the people. And then she can go back to doing what she needs to take care of herself. They, she can leave it. And I struggle so much when I am caught up in someone else's harm or the bigger picture. It is a fixation. I fixate on that and I have a really hard time letting it go. Okay. So your last instinct is called your blind spot. So John Luckovich, this is what he says. He says, your third instinct is neglected. It's called the blind spot because you are blind to the cost of neglecting it. In other words, you feel like it's useless. And it is also that you are unaware of how to get more deeply in touch with it. It's just completely, it seems so impossible in many ways. So I think it's interesting when he says we're blind to the cost of neglecting it. Yes. Right? Like we've been getting by without it. it, So until you don't. So it's really important to highlight that. I have had this kind of like lip curled scorn for social because I, in my head, I'm like, I have not needed this. I get by just fine by making my deep connections. Who needs groups? <laughs> Until suddenly you realize you are on the outside of some really important things. Or I've been invited into groups and invited to have a role there. And I realize I'm afraid to. And no eight wants to realize there's a spot that they're actually afraid of and a zone they cannot or dare not enter because... Well, then we don't go in. Exactly. Right? And we miss out on So then I want to conquer it. So now that I know, I can actually work on it. But it's really true is there is this mindset of who needs it anyway. So integrating your blind spot means that your actual outward circumstances have to change. So in my case... I have to physically put myself into group situations or I have to engage with group forums. All the things that I actually feel allergic to, I have to make a choice to engage with them. So for you, with self-pres as your blind spot. Oh yeah, it's so difficult. It's been a very long practice of um, actually listening to my body and stopping. And not when I crash, but actually actively saying at the beginning, I am going to make space for something that serves me rest. Rest is my hardest one, right? Because we still struggle with value and being still, but it's so necessary. And that's why I resonate so much with we don't realize the cost of neglecting it. Mm -hmm. You're highlighting the key thing 
where you were saying like rest for you is a big problem. And that's because with your social orientation, you are extra oriented towards doing for other people. And so there is this thing we have to keep in mind that we are actually invested psychologically in not paying attention to our blind spot because something about it threatens our dominant. So if my dominant is to get deep and intimate and time slows down with one human, you can't do by that. definition, social is yeah. the opposite. It's somehow having your energy spread out and spread out through the whole room and not getting hooked into one thing. You need to actually move about, scan the environment. And in my head, I'm like, but I'd be giving up my ability to go deep with people. Not only that, I'd be giving up my, it's a passion for me. I love doing it. Mm-hmm. Why would I want to give that up? So then you have to ask yourself, well, what is the purpose of this foreign thing that I don't ever engage in? And I think the purpose here isn't to become equal in all the parts, right? Like our purpose here is to, again, look at the cost of neglecting that piece Mm -hmm. and integrating it in. It's never going to be our comfort or not the first in line for us, a first line of defense, right? But it will have to be intentional. Yeah. But it serves us. And that's where we need to go and dig into what am I missing from this? And then. So there you you have it. Your first step would be name your blind spot. Tell yourself what the narrative is that you're saying about it, which no doubt will be, (laughs) I don't need it. And then think about someone that has that as their dominant and look at what they do in the world. And it will help you see what it is that they contribute that you have spent a lot of time in your head saying is useless. I think a lot of it is changing the narrative in our heads. It is. Is to say that is valuable to me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go through, and this will be just very high level, but let's talk about when you are social blind. Now, this is my specialty, (laughs) and we have to talk about what that would be like for someone with sexual first, but we also need to think about what that would be like for self-pres first, because it's a different it's a different thing. So for me as a sexual first, social blind essentially is being trapped in my really narrow focus, my zooming in on people to the neglect of being able to zoom out. Aaron always talks about being big picture and that couldn't be further from me. So being social blind is not to be able to zoom out and take in anything more than the pinpoint focus that I'm used to focusing on. I just can't seem to do that. I don't want to do that. So it means that I am perceived, I think, as more antisocial. I also think you can be perceived as more selfish. Yes. And I don't think think we don't care about it does at times. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so far from the truth, right? Right. Like it's so far from the truth. Yeah. Because in a sense, we care from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet for the one person that's in front of us. Mm hmm in a way that is unmatched by social or Mm self-pres, but we don't have anything left to give to anyone else in the room in that moment. So we can give our whole entire being one at a time. And so, or you may not be aware of the dynamics in the room and where you're not serving others well. Or, or triaging. Like I'm not, I'm not necessarily triaging. I'm already hooked into the one person, but there might be something going on over in the corner and I will not because I, my attention is totally occupied, will not notice that. Mm -hmm. And, um, we'll have a story about that in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) These instincts, 
They are body instincts, which means they come with a feeling that you associate in your body. Um, social as an instinct to someone who it is their blind spot. It makes me feel weak and it makes me feel always wrong footed in a room. When I'm in a group, I don't feel like an eight is the weird thing. I feel small and kind of lost and like I don't speak the language. Um, and so of course I hate it. Mm -hmm. Because I don't feel like me in my power. Um, so somebody with self-pres first, having social last, how would that kind of show up? It would probably feel overwhelming because they're so focused on making sure their resources are all in order and that they have enough. And social is about spending. I'm going to actually say I think there's a lot of my friends who are self-pres first and social last. And I feel that when I ask them to look at the bigger picture or the impact on the group as a whole, they get angry. And I don't think that's the underlying issue. I think it's an insecurity, right? Like they're panicked. You're don't, asking me to give up yes. more than I can give. Yes. And don't too let, many people. And don't ask me to take away my security, right? right. My way of operating in the world mm -hmm. to go care for a mass amount of people or a group cause or whatever, they don't see value in it. And so a lot of times I, I ran into this problem a lot with our school council. Like I am, I, I don't need to say this big picture thinking, and I'm looking at the whole situation of fundraising as a whole. And so I, I can get anybody on board, but the self-pres people I feel like with social last are the hardest because there's something about asking them to give of their own controlled pieces into something they don't see as valuable that just makes them irritated and annoyed. They just don't see the vision. They don't see the purpose. So it's yeah, not, so it's not valuable, right? Yeah, it's not so practical. Yeah. yeah. And it's not malicious and, or it's just simply that they don't have that skill yeah, set. It's to always see a that. calculation. Where will I allot my resources in a way that makes sense? Where the flip side for me would be, I may over expend myself, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. To, for the benefit of the, the whole group. Mm -hmm and not protect myself. Mm -hmm. For sexual blind, if you have self-pres first, what that means is you are out of touch with even the concept of attraction. <laughs> you don't know how to locate in your own self what makes you attractive or, or pinpoint what it is in someone else that makes them alluring to you. Desirable. It's not even yeah. on the radar. your radar yet. It's not even a thing. Sexual energy would feel really unstable to you. It would feel wild, chaotic, like and a vortex and a threat to your resource management. <laughs> and then if you're social first, then having a sexual blind spot means what if I am alienated from the group because I'm being too specific? I am being too deeply me. And I'm caught up in my niche so deeply that I am not available to the group as a whole. You're unavailable to the wider group. You're too specific and too weird. So I've always said sexual first. Too specific and too weird. <laughs> yes. You need to edit that out. <laughs> no. As a sexual first, it means that I am singing that very particular song that only 10% of the population enjoys. 
And the truth is like 90%, they're not even ambivalent. They just really don't like it even. They don't even understand it. And that is a social's nightmare. But is it that you really enjoy it or is it that you enjoy that no one else enjoys it? Well, remember, I have four, so we can't talk to me about this. This is like not, I'm not a good case study for that. Because no, it actually, I don't, I want to fit in. Mm-hmm. I want to be part of a group. I like long for it, but I will not give up. I will not sacrifice my uniqueness. I will right. not give up something that doesn't feel authentic and fit me. So yeah, you can see why it would feel threatening for a social first. Well, y- you've looked at me at times and gone, you're not even well, trying to fit in. Like what's up? Yeah. So channel that. It can often look like, I don't want to be here. Which internally, it feels more like, I don't know how to be what you need. And I know that now, right? It's just that Mm -hmm. that's the lens we were looking through at the time. And I'm looking from that social place and you're looking from that sexual. And But you do have a little bit of sexual. So this is you trying to I do. So it's hard for me to imagine. Not at all. Yeah. Okay. So finally, if you're self-preservation blind and you (laughs) are a social first Aaron, give a little high view idea of why that feels like a threat and what the problem is. I think it it really does go back to, I don't feel any value in investing by myself, for myself, right? It's a, when you are investing in yourself, it's solitary. So if I take time to exercise or I take time to take care of me, I'm usually doing that alone and I don't like being alone and I don't feel comfortable alone and I don't find value in being alone. Yeah, you're driven to care for the group. And so for you to take care of yourself means you have to outsource to other people to meet the needs you normally would be meeting. Yes. And so when I do exercise in the past, I get someone to come on board, right? Like we do it together. And when I want to rest or go to the spa, I bring someone along. And I will say that that has changed significantly in the last X amount of years, right? But but that's what happens. Like when you, for me, having self-pres last meant I ignored my body for so long because I didn't need it. I didn't need to take care of my body to do what I was going to do always until it crashed. And then it didn't allow me to do that anymore. And all of a sudden I had to, which I will say, like, as much as I hate that part of my life and I, I still grieve my strength from before, like it's given me a whole other lens, right? To operate in the world. And it, it is easier for me to access and value rest now. Um, and then if you are a sexual first like me and don't have any self-pres, I do. So I'm just imagining. (laughs) I think what would be happening is as a sexual eight, you are extra lusty. So you are extra prone to going all in and running hard and then and and being full bodied about everything. Everything and then going for the bigger picture of all of that. Well, so um, accessing self-pres would be to put the brakes on. Yes. It's putting brakes on. Self-pres is inherently putting brakes on the mm-hmm. lust of an eight and managing mm-hmm. it. It's allotting space for it. And because it's second, I can turn that on or off. But I would imagine if it was last, it would feel like, hell no. Why would I want to stop this lusty ride? That's my guess. Yes. So we'll hope to talk to some of you in future episodes and hear the goods on that. So just remember that working on your blind spot is going to feel like weakness. And it has to be intentional. It's yeah. not something that is just going to happen without absolute intent. There's also a, there's shame involved. Mm-hmm. So Erin has spoken about that. Yes. She doesn't feel valuable. I feel really stupid in a group. I feel like I'm not even there. I feel like a wallflower, which is so far from an eight's usual experience. So remember that, that this journey will, like all of our Enneagram journey so far, have moments where you have to overcome this initial gross feeling of shame 
And you need to remind yourself, no, this isn't about saying you're not enough. This is about saying there are other tools available to you. And you just need to, you just need to name them. <laughs> I also think one of the things that's been really helpful for myself is I don't feel weak looking at someone else taking care of themselves. If it's at the cost of a group, I might, I might feel frustrated at times, but in the end, when you go run every day or you, you know, do things that are about taking care of yourself, I look at that and think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's only weak for me, right? And I think we have to start. Yeah, other people aren't seeing it that way. Well, sure. I, and I don't see it that other way about other people. Right. Right. It's only about myself. I, I don't care if someone doesn't accomplish everything in a day or they sit still and read a book for an mm-hmm. hour in the middle of a day. That doesn't, I wouldn't even be on my radar to care. Totally. Or to think that was weak. Mm-hmm. But when it's about me or when it's about us, our own personal selves, right? We have written these truths, in quotation truths, about what we tell ourselves. And I think starting to unpack that while we intentionally force ourselves to do stuff that's uncomfortable is really important. I just want to ask you to give a story or an example of self-pres last. (laughs) Well, I have one that's in my head. I don't know if I've talked about this on our podcast before, but I'll tell it again. When I was about 16, I was a figure skater. One afternoon, it had snowed. My cousin and all his friends were going out to play football. And I asked to come along. And there was a lot of eye rolling and, oh, a girl. like the. And my cousins, they're big guys. They're all over six feet. They finally agreed to let me play. And so we were playing in the snow. And at one point, I got tackled. And when I got tackled, I twisted my foot before I went down. And two people landed on me. And I knew right away that I had probably broken my foot. But I didn't want to be called out as the like weak link of the game or have anybody make comments about me being the girl and, and whatnot. So I crawled to the side of where we were playing football and I just told them, I just need a minute, just a sec. I'm just taking a quick break. Blew it off as though it was nothing. Sat in the snow for about 30 minutes trying to decide how I was going to deal with this situation that I didn't want brought to light. I did go to the hospital and they told me my foot was okay. And so because they said it was okay, I continued to skate. I had a competition coming up. Here's where as a parent, I'm like, don't, don't do these things. And I don't know what my parents were thinking, but I couldn't walk. So I was on crutches, but skates are like molded out of solid, solid leather. And so I could put my skates on and my foot was held up essentially like a cast. I could skate. I couldn't land a jump. I I fell on every single thing I tried, but I was determined that I was not going to not compete. So I skated. And then my dad would pick me up off the ice because I couldn't actually walk once I got onto the ground. A few weeks later, we re-x-rayed and I was broke. My foot was broken in two different locations and two surgeries later and my skating was over and (laughs) it cost me my skating. It cost me the rest of that, which was never going to be a career, but it cost me the joy of being able to compete a few more years. Mm -hmm. Your blind spots cost you. They do. That's the moral of the story. They really do. Yeah. As sexual first with social last, I, weirdly enough, still usually coordinate a lot of group things. I love the idea of how a group will feel and then it never feels the way that I think it should because dynamics and all that. You probably don't have the wherewithal to invite the right people together. I've used my sexual to go this person and me vibe, this person and me vibe. I'm happy enough. It's when I am coordinating something I'm not allowed to uninvite people to or I don't have it. So this was a church event. So I was coordinating a snowshoe at night in the Gatineau Hills. It's always at night because I like it at night. (laughs) 
it's a good rigorous hike because that's what I like. So that's what I coordinated, take it or leave it. You could come or, or not come. I gather them all up. I tell them what to bring. Then we set off and I become utterly oblivious to the group as a whole. So what had happened that night is I had um, started out on the trail and it gets really deep and dark and we really are in the middle of nowhere. And I had ended up in very deep conversation with one girl at the beginning of the line because we were the fastest. So I got talking to her and what I hadn't realized is there were two friends who were at the back of the group who were afraid of the dark. They ended up lagging behind and I didn't notice. At the end of the night, there was the most awkward and terrible intervention that seemed to happen where the two of them basically told me it was not okay that I hadn't noticed, that I should have known. I felt shame, but I also felt really angry because I thought, you didn't have to come. And how can I know something I actually don't know how to know? I full on said, why do you come? And they said, because you wanted us to. Don't come if you don't want to come. But anyway, I started to go, okay, the only way I can stop this from happening again is to give a mental checklist, kind of like, you know how autistic people have a chart on the wall with the different facial expressions and they have to learn that this means sad and this means whatever. It was to the point where mechanically I was like, okay, I will make sure that I stay at the back so I, I can go ahead and have And my- then I put my head up and actually count how many people are with us occasionally <laughs> to make sure yeah, that's it. someone incapacitated. Set a timer, put a timer on my phone that says, okay, do a head count. See, and as Which you I hate, it, yeah. I kind of hate And as you tell it. that story, I think that feels so horrible to me. Like that yeah. idea that you have to put so much work and effort into being aware, where for me, it's so natural that it, it takes zero effort, right? Like I'm just yeah. consciously aware. It's like, so I have awful. to condescend to put timers on my phone because that's how oblivious I am to this kind of thing. Isn't it's that being interesting? super intentional. It's very interesting. Okay, so Mario Sakura, we've already spoken about him. He has a very controversial take on the order of your stacking for instincts. And he says that they only ever go in the same order. His navigators, aka social, he would say that they always, always have self-pres as their last, as their blind spot. And in Aaron's case, that's true. Yeah. He would say that the transmitters, me, sexual, always have social last. And in our case, that is correct of me as well. And so part of me was like, hmm, maybe there's something to this. And then finally, he would say that um, self-pres, the preservers, they have no interest at all in uh, sexual. As a businessman working with thousands and thousands of business people, he would say that he has always seen in the workforce that sexuals struggle with workplace politics, which is a social <laughs> superpower. Yep. He says socials always struggle with process and structure. Oh, for sure. Right? <laughs> and self-pres will never be interested in peacocking or self-promoting or doing the things that you would expect of, you know, sexual energy, of standing out, of, you know, shining a light on their uniqueness. So that's just not something they will do. And so we just wanted to put that out there as a theory that's floating around. And any of you that don't fit that category, you'll have to let us know why he's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So for the record, because Sakura uses different language, he calls the second instinct your zone of inner conflict because he says that you can use it, but there's always a little bit of tension and discomfort. Um, So I was just telling Aaron, you know, at the wedding, my daughter got married, there was a potluck and my self-pres is second. 
I felt a little angsty about the fact that everybody was going to go up to the potluck line before me. And there was just this little, ugh, this little sense of unease that I wouldn't get the food I wanted, the best food. But then I told myself to get over it. <laughs> and I said, take it or leave last. it. Yes, yeah, that's right. As mother of the bride, you were going to let everyone else eat the food. And then he calls the last spot, the last instinct, your zone of indifference. I do wonder with him though, if studying it in the workforce, there is something a little bit different about being in the workforce versus your, your home life, right? People do perform differently. Yeah. And, and his area of expertise is the workforce. So it's just one lens. Yeah. So I wonder if that yeah. puts a different kind mm-hmm. of filter on the Enneagram for him. But he's funny because he's definitely said he's come under fire, but he's an eight, so he doesn't care. Interesting. <laughs> so Catherine Favre, it was so interesting when we were interviewing her because Joe and I have sort of played loosely with this theory, and I'm not sure where we heard it, that you use your instincts with each of number in your tri-type. For instance, I would say that I am eight and I am social, so I'm a social eight. I go to seven next, so my second sexual would be seven and my self-pres would be three. And Catherine Favre mentioned when we were interviewing her that that's actually not the case and that you you go to your prominent instinct in every number of your tri-type. So Joe and I were kind of playing around with that and how do we feel that feels. And what I think I learned for me is that if I go back to my 18-year-old self, that is true. That I look more self-pres in my seven actually now, but... As a 16-year-old, I am social in all three numbers of my tri-type first. But I think Catherine Favre is one smart woman. (laughs) It was from two of our listeners that we actually heard that one of each instinct is attached to one of each of your tri-type numbers. And you and I got really excited and we went and tested it out. (laughs) And at first we totally were like, it totally works. So I thought I'm SX8. I thought it was a self-pres 7 and I thought I was a social 4, but... (laughs) Today, Today, before we got on here, we thought we need to revisit this for a minute and just really dig deep. And I did it last night. So when Joe came this morning, I said, you need to go revisit this because I've changed my tune. That's right. (laughs) Part of the problem was that I found basically sexual across the board. The descriptions tend to be pretty awful. No, I think all of us sexuals across the board, I have not heard different, are like, wow, we are really misrepresented. It's described in a really crass, awful way when what it really is, is about that depth and that energetic connection. So it just is one of those areas where if eights are unfairly treated, sexual is unfairly treated. That makes us SX eights feeling pretty beat up and pretty misunderstood. So the reality is like, if I looked at SX four as described by Beatrice Chestnut, there are terms that come up like arrogant, makes others suffer, is demanding, and is the mad for. I'm not going to connect with that. No. I'm just not going to connect with that. Whereas Catherine Favre, her way of describing the sexual for is emotionally intense, um, self-confident, really claims their position, can overstep boundaries, can throw caution to the wind in the moment of intensity. And I'm like, yes, (laughs) I can resonate to all those things. Yes, I resonate to all those things. And then even the uncomfortable bits of like being um, more self-oriented or selfish can diminish others to feel bigger. I'm like, okay, you know what? If I'm being really honest. Yeah. and, And she put it more in a more nuanced way. I'm like, okay, I can connect with that. And then in terms of the seven, in Catherine Favre's words, that a sexual seven has this push-pull quality, is attracted to the falling in love part and wants the buzz and the high. And it's very drug-like. And tricky parts come in when the buzz wears off. 
You have to be careful what you do with that. Have this addictive behavior are attracted to the rock star image and the buzz that you experience from things like music can be very similar to the experience you have in relationships and that you can use creativity to release the frustration of boredom. And I was like, yes. <laughs> so I think we would recommend you go look up Catherine Favre's ex- explanation of your main instinct in your tri-types descriptions. And we think, and we want to hear from you, that you will find that there is connection that you can find. So Aaron, talk us through how you are social in all three of your tri-type. Yeah. So the social seven, they talk about has a really good sense of humor and they use it. And I am always sarcastic and humor. And I mean, that's also an eight thing, but I definitely use that on a daily basis to keep things light and help people feel safe. They have sharp minds that are incorporate social awareness into their humor, which they get, they use to get by in their interactions in the world. I think that's very accurate. Their health and commitments fall by the wayside. If something else is more fun, I usually will let go of the not commitment in terms of like, if I've committed my time or something to someone, I don't, I, I am loyal. But if it's something that I should be doing, studying, getting ready for something, I will drop to go do something more fun or to meet someone I want to see. It says they end up in marriages with people that are more reliable and stable and have a much more low key personality. So they get stability that they don't have themselves. And then the social three, it talks about them being a bit materialistic, but they're not necessarily super directed on that goal of being showy in it. I'm going to say, I have a nice car, but it is not about image for me. It's about me feeling good about what I'm driving and my car met all my needs. And so it's practical and I love it. So I like the materialistic things so long as they meet my needs. I don't need them for you to think I'm important. So the social three also talks about it focuses on relationships and in does long for some intensity in the relationships and it creates the more kind of playful energy of the three. And I think that's pretty accurate for me. What's interesting is right now I look at the self-pres seven and my seven, eight are so close in my tri-type and I relate a lot to the self-pres seven, but I think that is more because of my life circumstance right now. I, I certainly wouldn't have related so much as a 18 year old kid. So anyway, we're working it out. That's for you to explore. But Catherine has certainly given us some good food for thought. A last resource we'll point you to is it's a website we found at the beginning of this Enneagram journey. And we've already found a few things we don't identify with, but it's called eight stacks. We'll just talk you through the stacking that is our stacking. And then we'll test out the other ones on our guests as we interview them. So Erin, what does it say about social Sexual. Okay, so the social sexual combination often comes across a little bit softer than the other sexual first subtypes. Like we're a little less intense, probably because we're more in tune to the feelings of the people around us. The social instinct combines with the sexual to make a subtype that is very aware of interpersonal dynamics. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I'm you. quite good at knowing how I'm affecting somebody or how they feel around me. The social sexual is a lot more talkative. <laughs> and if the seven wing is dominant, it might be mistaken for a seven. So I'll script that part and say, if the seven is part of my tri-type, <laughs> it's probably uh, very true. And I am definitely a more talkative human. Overall, this is a seven-ish feel. Uh, feel. Yeah, no, it really is. Yes. Yeah. And seven does get that social feel, right? Because they're always light and they're fun. They usually have a wide variety of friends and a wide circle of friends. I wouldn't say variety so much as circle. I do have a big circle of friends and I try to kind of tend to pull them all in together. I love having my groups of people together. They're very charismatic and they use humor to charm people. Yes, that is true. 
On the downside, they can use their interpersonal awareness to con people. So I would put that in a nicer way and say... I've already told you you're totally a con I'm very good (laughs) at knowing how to get what I need or want. (laughs) Let me rephrase that. She's the nicest con artist ever. Want. I know how to get what I want. I don't know what I need, so it's very rare that I get what I actually probably need, but... (laughs) I'm going to call you a benevolent con artist. (laughs) I'm the gold digger. You're the benevolent con artist. This one says the subtype is actually lacking in the entrepreneurial skills. And I don't know about that because I've been entrepreneurial my whole life. And is it because I grew up in a family where we owned our own business? So I learned them. Is it the three in my tri-type? Well, think of Mario Sakura. What he's saying is you do struggle with like repeatable process. It's like not your favorite. No. And so you've always said your best thing is delegating. It's and, more visionary. And if I'm can gonna, you imagine being locked into a company? No. And doing the same no. process over and over. So that's what he means, I think. I also think it's probably like, yeah, start a business, run a business, right? Where if I was going to start a business, it'd be something where I was doing something different all yes, the time. That's right. And if I was going to start a business, it would be going into businesses and telling them what they need to fix to make their business better. Yeah. That's <laughs> right? right. So, so yeah. in the sense that you build and stay with one company forever, bad, not going to work. In the sense of starting and then leaving it in someone else's hands, yes, you're genius. Yeah. So they say the lust for life manifests through connection to others. So this is where I have a hard time again with the cold and aloof piece, right? So I totally get what Let's you're saying. Let's call it diffuse. Actually we'll true. call it just spread out and diffuse. Yeah. So I connect in a very broad sense, but I also need my small little tribe, whatever that looks like. And for years, it was a couple sets of neighbors on our street. We traveled together. We did, they they became essentially like my second family, right? And that was my tribe. And I always felt safe and secure there. And I needed that. So I can say I experienced you on both ends. I'm now one of those people. So now you're endlessly warm, but I was also on the outside and I was like, I can't get to you. Yes. You are nonstop. You are everywhere. I'm replaceable. I can't get to you. So I've actually experienced both. So I can understand where it's coming from. Um, and most people are me in that scenario. Most of the world is that person on the outside. Only a few people get into your warmth. This is true. So whereas everybody gets my heat, like. Good or bad? Good or bad. Yeah, no, that's true. Fire hose. Fire hose. On the high side, their awareness of the social dynamic makes them very charismatic. On the downside, it can make them overly aware of issues involving control. They're very sensitive to any hint that others may be trying to control them, but they may misuse power themselves. Do you think I misuse power? I don't know. Only you can answer that, my friend. That's why I'm asking, because I don't don't see it. You've never, I've never put you in a position of power over me, so I don't really know what to say about that. Ask your kids. Yeah. Power. Well, I think I probably did before I was aware that because eights do too, right? Generally. Yeah. For me, it's like I trample boundaries. I don't even know there were any. Might be a subconscious piece. It says that we don't always have staying power. We'll lay the groundwork for big things and move on. There we go. That's me. (laughs) I love coming in, looking at a big picture, saying, change these things and this is going to run and then moving on to the next thing to fix. I don't want to stay while you do all the changes and then run the process. Okay, so my stacking is sexual and then self-preservation. This website says that this subtype is very charismatic. Yes, I've heard that. I don't see myself that way, but that is apparently what I am. Yes, you are. They have a very assertive energy and demand attention. We have talked about this. (laughs) If I'm talking with someone... 
like a mom, even with young children, and they turn from me to attend to their child. I do not like it. We were recording a podcast <laughs> once and one of my kids came into the room and I was just like, hold on one sec to Joe. And I could see the irritation immediately was like, what are you doing That's right. <laughs> to say to my kid? But I have to say this. When we were away on one of our weekend things, I have to do it to you. I'm like, hello, tune in to me. Totally. You get distracted by your phone or the other things. <laughs> or, so it's the thing that's you're, you're more interested in yes. going deeper in that's that right. thing at that moment. Uh-huh. And then your attention is gone. Totally. I'm thinking of like one of Even the superhero movies where there's a, a jet of fire energy, like coming out of a weapon or something like a, <laughs> Only you a would go big, to super totally. And then somebody cuts it off. They just cut it off <laughs> or they like stay. Laser the, it. Yeah. They like stop the flow. It's like, Oh, just brutal. Okay. One of the most fiery combinations of all the types, especially if seven is the dominant, <laughs> wing, dominant wing. Well, that would be me. These eights aren't afraid to tell you what they think. Yes, to a certain extent, because I've learned. The I pain. think I was going to say, I think cost. you've you've learned, but yes. you are very good at being brutally honest. Yes. Okay. That's true. Can do attitude with an outward storm energy. <laughs> So in other words, it's like a very forward moving. With purpose and aggression. Yeah, that's right. Okay, basically, the intensity level is augmented kind of across the board. They don't let an opportunity pass to connect. I literally walked in today and was like, so Aaron, I hung out with a homeless man today for half an hour. His name is Joel. <laughs> no, and and you would, if you were on a run and you ran into a homeless person that you decided you needed to talk to, you would stop your run immediately and then that would become the fixation, right? Like yeah. your run would be over. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, 100%. They can sense power. I think maybe more than most people, I would say that that is true. I'm not sure why that's so true. You, Why is that true? I wonder if it's a true thing and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you feel like power is so dangerous always. I do. You distrust anyone who holds any power first. Yes. You come around a lot. Yeah. To, to decide you're wrong on that about mm-hmm. a person. But if they hold power, you have an immediate distrust. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it relates to sexual energy, but I do know that part of what it is to be me is to be so in need to be the individual I am. That is, that sexual energy that is, sexual, is yeah. to be incredibly specific in who I am. If the person in power has control over what that will look like, that's a threat to me. Mm-hmm. Unless they happen to have the same ideals of right. what one one should look like. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what's going on there. They can enjoy making others react to them. Okay, so an insight Big Hormone gave me into that is that because we're so hungry to look for a specific energy that will match ours, subconsciously, if we really throw out a really over-the-top expression of ourselves, it's going to repel all the people we don't want anyway. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's like useful. Our, it's like useful. sifting. Yeah. It's like our sifting process so that the only people that get through are the people that are matched to our energy anyway. It's a weird, weird you're thing. you're not wasting your time. Yeah, but it's kind of true that that's what happens. Really want to find out what makes people tick? Yes, that's what I meant about digging for gold. And use humor to accomplish that. That is absolutely, it's like my way of cutting the intensity is to pop in humor, especially if I'm aware I'm being too much. That must be a sexual thing because it's also in my All the way time. of coping too. <laughs> Total. Yeah. And seven wing though. It and might sometimes be- I'm really inappropriate. Yeah. Like we're grieving Derek's dad dying or something and I'll uh-huh. crack a joke because I just need the room to yeah. be lighter. 
Totally. Okay, so those are our descriptions of ours, and we will go over the ones that are applicable as we interview some of you eights. That's it for today. Looking forward, we're going to be talking about how we can integrate our blind spot into our lives a little bit more fluently, hopefully efficiently. It's, hopefully it's not as hard as it feels like it will be. We'll see. Well, if you're like me, you'll just get lucky and you have no choice. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible, terrible. I, I wish that on nobody. <laughs> That's it for today. We hope by now you've realized there's a lot more going on under the surface. And you'll continue to follow along as we take you inside the armor. <laughs>